Hey, we're going to jump, jump right in uh, to our study in the book of Nehemiah. Um, the reason I picked Nehemiah, I just felt like the Lord was kind of pushing us toward this. A, it's been a long time since we've been in an Old Testament book. But there is um, what I would refer to as an archetypal quality to the story of Nehemiah. Um, the natural tendency of the human heart is to drift and to... Uh, and to move away from the direction that we ought to be going. Uh, this is the, the nature of humanity in a fallen state. Um, and it's humanity's history. And it's definitely been the history of God's people. And the powerful narrative of Nehemiah is that God's people have been, uh, been in uh, captivity, uh, first conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, and, uh, and then the Babylonians were conquered by the Persian Empire and under the Persian king, uh, beginning um, with Cyrus, uh, and then uh, the the king who uh, the king of Persia that we have here in the story of Nehemiah, Artaxerxes, uh, is there is a um, allowance by the Persian Empire for the exiles of Israel to return to Jerusalem to uh, rebuild the temple. Uh, and the wall, and to restore Israel's worship of the one true God, Yahweh. And the reason that the Persian Empire allows this to take place is that they saw that if they were going to maintain their power as, the, as this, this empire that continued to expand through conquering, that if we can keep the people uh, if we can keep the people happy by allowing them to maintain their traditions as long as they don't rebel against our empire, then what harm is it in allowing them to worship their God? And part of the reason they were also accepting of that is because they were a, they, they were a polytheistic country. So another God's not going to hurt anything. Uh, and if it keeps the people um, at peace, because uh, Persia also at this time, uh, the great enemy that was confronting them uh, from south of, of Jerusalem was Egypt. And so there, there was a, this was strategic uh, in its move. But what they didn't understand, the Persian Empire did not understand, is that, and we have a unique insight into this as readers of the Scripture, uh, is that God's providential hand was at play, God working out his redemptive purposes in human history, and the fulfillment, actually, of the prophecy in Jeremiah that God would return his people from exile uh, and that he would maintain um, his covenant promises uh, with the children of Abraham. And so this powerful passage is Ezra and Nehemiah are meant to be read together. Uh, and Nehemiah takes place about 60 years after the book of Ezra. The first wave of, of exiles return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple. Um, Ezra uh, is, um, is a key player in that who begins to teach the people the word of God again. Nehemiah comes as the wine, as the, the cupbearer for the king of Persia, um, a Jewish man a man um, who is faithful to the Torah, faithful to God, um, and a servant of the king and intimate with the king. And God has given Nehemiah great favor with the king of Persia. And as we looked at last week is that Nehemiah hears about the state of affairs in Jerusalem and that the wall is in ruins, the temple is not yet built, and he is brokenhearted over 
uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, and his desire is to be a participant in the rebuilding so that God's people can once again enter into that covenantal relationship and worship um, as stated in the Torah. Nehemiah's, um, Nehemiah's character is one of in just incredible integrity. Uh, it's a powerful picture of leadership, but more importantly, I think that Nehemiah gives us a picture of, of how do we uh, begin to move back to a place of health when we have gone through a great shaking. <laughs> You know, the book of Hebrews says that God will shake everything that can be shaken until only that which is unshakable remains. And I believe that the last three years has been a great shaking of the church. And, and a lot has been shaken loose. The, the churches across the country, uh, and even uh, I would say in many Western countries, have been cut in half. Uh, and there is a massive exodus from the faith, and it can lead to great discouragement. And like the children of Israel, the exiles that returned to, uh, returned to Jerusalem, and even the rebuilding of the temple, those that were there to see the early glory are actually heartbroken that it's, it's not the same as it once was. And there's, and there's all these challenges of rebuilding when, when things have gotten off track, when things have fallen into ruin. And you see this actually in Europe right now is that you have a post-Christian society and there's movements of renewal of faith. Uh, in the UK especially, uh, a place where it was hard to find churches in the, in, in the UK probably even 20 years ago that were full. Uh, and there is, there is a real renewal movement uh, and a return to faith that's happening um, kind of out of this postmodern time. And, some of the shaking that happened through COVID and stuff has actually caused more people to come to faith, but it also causes people to walk away from it. And so how do we as God's people um, return, which is another word for repent, <laughs> how do we, how do we um, rebuild and how do we experience revival? And I think that this is the question that I have as a pastor kind of post-COVID. Um, my interest is in what does the church look like moving forward? Um, how do we reinforce faith in a way that, um, that we don't see a massive exodus uh, when trials come once again? And what does that say about our understanding of faith? Last week we considered um, Nehemiah shows us the path to renewal begins with first things first. And he begins by recognizing the waywardness of himself and his people, repenting, mourning, fasting, and praying. Prayer is the crucial kind of movement. Every revival, every revival in church history began um, by great seasons of long years of prayer for revival. And I love that Nehemiah kind of gives us this pattern. Before he even makes a single movement, um, he spends time in communion with God. He, he believes that God is calling him to something, but he spends time Take, taking time to hear from God, to, be, to make sure that, that this, this sense that he is to participate in this restoration uh, is coming directly from him. And now we're going to see him begin to move, move toward that restoration. I think it would be good for us um, as we start, because I'm not going to, uh, as I kind of walk you through the points, I'm, um, to begin by just reading through chapter two, uh, to kind of just set the scene. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in the month of Nisan, not the car, 
in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, the, the, uh, the cup holder uh, is an intimate of the king. I shared last week, Nehemiah was to taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So, you know, you didn't have, this was not a democratic system here, okay? Like, kings either died, um, uh, rarely did they die of old age. Most of the time they died because someone assassinated them and took their place. And so one of the ways they'd protect themselves is they had people that would make sure that their food wasn't poisoned, their wine wasn't poisoned. So Nehemiah probably had to drink a lot of wine for this king. And that, I, if you're a wine lover, that's not a terrible job. Um, now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. The king recognizes that Nehemiah seems to be struck with what seems like depression. And then I was very much afraid, very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should, I not, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And I just want to point out that Nehemiah was very much afraid because to request um, a departure from service to the king was to put your life um, at the mercy of one who I'm sure uh, had seen the king uh, lose his temper uh, and the execution of people that were considered not loyal or not faithful or not, uh, uh, not you know, in awe of even being allowed to live, uh, was this was a this was a courageous moment. Uh, Nehemiah's fear, um, you, you know, for most of us it would have caused us to just remain silent. I'm not going to put my neck on the chopping block, and so I'm just going to hold it in and come up with an excuse why I'm downtrodden. But instead, he steps out in faith and lets it lets it be known why he's afraid, trusting that God will protect him. And he goes, I love this. He goes, so I, the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Last week we saw Nehemiah praying alone, fasting, praying. Now he is praying as he is acting. And I do this every week when I preach because I'm always scared. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, and you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Here's another one of those moments where God's, uh, God's uh, role in the story um, is stated in, a, in terms of something that is happening behind the scenes, God's movement behind the scenes. It's what we call providence. Not meticulous providence, which is the belief that God, everything that happens has been dictated and determined by God. I think that that 
ultimately turns God into a monster and makes him responsible for sin itself. Uh, and uh, you're welcome to disagree with me on that, but uh, whenever I have asked people who do hold to that position, uh, they simply appeal to mystery. I think they're appealing to mystery too late in the game. Uh, what I would define providence as is, is in connection to God's sovereignty, which means that God is free to do what he wants in accordance with his character, his purposes, and his plans. And if God chooses to override the wickedness of humanity to accomplish his good, he has the power to do so. In other words, he can weave the dissonant notes of human existence into his redemptive song. This allows him to remain, remain ultimately in control of the narrative without making him responsible for the evil that people do. But this is not the sermon for today. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, these were two, uh, two leaders in Jerusalem at the time that are, are the pic first picture of opposition to the work of God. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They loved their position, their control, their power, and it was being threatened by actually caring for the very people who had returned to Jerusalem. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spirit of spring and to the dung gate. What a terrible name. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. It's a powerful passage. Chapter two of Nehemiah, if chapter one gives us an incredible insight into the power of prayer and the necessity of prayer, Chapter two gives us insight into what I refer to as a faith that works. A faith that works. You know, I have always loved uh, a particular um, speech given by Teddy Roosevelt, a brilliant president and a man of incredible uh, eloquence. Uh, I think Roosevelt's, Teddy Roosevelt was known for reading approximately five books a day. It's insane, and he had a photographic memory. 
And he was an absolute verbal processor who exhausted everyone that was close to him. So there's just a lot about this man that I really, really admire and makes me not despair about my own personality. Um, <laughs> I read this thing that someone went in to meet with him and he's so intense and so verbal that the guy like left exhausted. And I guess that was a very common experience with Teddy Roosevelt because he just wanted to share everything he was learning all the time. But this famous speech called The Man in the Arena, I think is a picture of what I would call a faith that works. This is, this is the speech, it's very short. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievements, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. It's a powerful picture of the necessity of risk if we want to see real change. That the greatest pleasures in life are difficult pleasures and require a real struggle. A struggle with existence and a struggle with our more base drives that often lead us off the path to greater life. The challenge for us as Christians is that how do we reconcile the call to act with the fact that we are saved by faith alone. There's always been this tension within church history around this question of, of faith and works. And I don't think we need to have these things be in conflict with one another. What we need is what we see in Scripture, which is a faith that works. A faith that actually leads to the transformation of a life and impacts the world in which God has invited us to participate in his great redemptive purposes. Nehemiah is a beautiful picture of a faith that works. You know, I um, remember being uh, blown away by my time with my dad in 2019. I flew up to, to stay with him for a week. It was really hard. Um, and he began sharing with me, I, it was one of the few times I was able to really talk with him about my faith where he didn't start yelling at me, um, and he was just so glad that I was there. He was so sick, so sick, um, and you know, he had been in and out of ICU, like he was going into the hospital at least twice a month uh, on, you know, the guy had more than nine lives, like he would, he, he lost blood, so he would be, he would have to go in and get like blood infusions because he had ulcers where he was just bleeding out. Um, and he was dying of COPD and he's on oxygen and he chain smoked even while he had the oxygen in. He caught his nose on fire like twice, just like smoking with the oxygen in, which I didn't know could actually blow up. It's extremely dangerous and he didn't care. Um, uh, and I was talking with him about faith and he, and he told me this, it was so fascinating. He said, he goes, I believe that Jesus is the son of God and I believe that he died for the sins of the world. And I believe that he rose from the dead. And I'm like, you what? 
because I had shared with him, he'd never went to church growing up, so I didn't know where he was getting this information, and I was like, I don't think he's ever let me even share that much with him. What I found out later was that he had a chaplain, a chaplain named Frank, who had been sharing the gospel with him every time he went in the hospital, and he was in the hospital every other week. So he was hearing the gospel more than some of you. <laughs> so <laughs> since the average attendance like once a month now. Um, and and he, he was able to articulate it, and he said, I believe all of those things. And I was like, Dad, that's, that's amazing. So, <coughs> excuse me, would you call yourself a believer then? Would you call yourself a follower of Jesus? And he said, no. And I go, but you just said you believe these things. And, he, and I go, what, if you believe it, what's stopping you? And he goes, I am not willing to surrender to Jesus. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be mean, but let me point out the obvious. I mean, there's just not a lot to surrender here. I mean, you're basically already dead. Uh, and then he was like, F you, Joshua. And then like we moved on the conversation. But I thought about this a lot. What I realized in this moment is that my father actually understood the gospel better than most Christians. Because a lot of Christians think I believe that Jesus says those things. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died for my sins. I believe in Jesus. Therefore, I'm a Christian. But that's not a saving faith, and that is most definitely not a faith that works. Now, there are people that go way too far and push on the idea of lordship salvation, which is there's, there can't be such a thing as backsliding, and that's just BS, and it creates guilt and shame and legalism. But a faith that works is it requires a right understanding of what faith is. And what my dad understood about faith was that it's not enough to believe, it's not enough to have an intellectual assent that Jesus is all these things. My dad knew that there had not been a transformation because he knew that he didn't want Jesus to be in control of his life. What is Jesus, how does Jesus teach his people to pray? Our Father is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. To say your kingdom come means my kingdom must go. <laughs> to say your will be done means that my will now is secondary to your will or should be shaped by your will. My dad understood this. Now what's powerful is six months later he did pray to receive Jesus. He did surrender. And yes, the fear of death, very much like the thief on the cross, became the driving force to the recognition like he was fighting a, um, he was fighting a battle that he would not win and he wanted to end up on the right team. And so the fear of, if the fear of God leads you to, a, to a, a saving surrender, praise God. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, the love of God, I think, ultimately becomes the thing that motivates us toward transformation. But here's what I want us to understand, is that I believe one of the reasons that the church was emptied of about half of its attendees, not just Door of Hope, but on a, on a national scale, is because people do not understand any longer the basic tenets of the faith. We have a difficult time even defining the very words that are the sacred words we use to describe ourselves. To be able to define the word faith, or to be able to define the word grace, or to be able to define the word salvation, 
or atonement. These are sacred words that are so familiar that we actually haven't even stopped to ask the question, do I even know what they mean and do, have they actually brought any kind of change to how I live? Faith I have often defined as this. It is a disposition toward an object that allows that object to do something for you. One of the most powerful preaching <laughs> moments for me was at Door of Hope Northeast. Have you guys ever been to the Fremont Building? Have most of you been to the Fremont Building? So if you haven't, we have another church uh, in Northeast on 9th and Fremont. It was the first building that we purchased. It's beautiful. Um, and it was, it's a lot smaller. It's a lot smaller. So like 200 people is like full there. And when we were there, we were having to do five services. And we were squeezing in like 400 people a service. And it was uncomfortable, which is why we had to move out of it. We planted Door of Hope Northeast um, two weeks before COVID started. Uh, Ian's actually preaching there today. But the room was filled with these pews, and the pews just made the, the whole sanctuary feel so crowded. I mean, really crowded. And so uh, we sold off all the pews, and I collected for months um, miscellaneous chairs from all over the place. And I'll just state um, that... Uh, Fashion before function was not always uh, the, the, was actually never um, the guiding force. I wanted it to be beautiful, which meant that there were some chairs that were not as stable as others. Uh, and I remember one day I was speaking on faith and I talked about, I'm like, so, <laughs> it's insane that this happened. Uh, it was really powerful sermon illustration. I did not, I could not have planned it. Um, I said, Right now, you are placing your faith in the chair that you are sitting in. And that faith is not, you don't believe the chair exists. Of course the chair exists. When you say you have faith in the chair, it means that you believe that it can hold you up. In fact, that's so, that you are so accustomed to, to trusting in chairs ability to do what they're created to do that you wouldn't even think of it as faith. But that is what you're exercising every time you sit down in one. And literally like five minutes later, a woman fell through one of the chairs onto the floor. And I didn't know what to say. And being myself in an awkward situation, I just made it more awkward. And I said, that's, a, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sorry. I, I don't think I picked that one. I don't think I had anything to do with that chair. That was Evan's fault. No, <laughs> but, but the fact is, is that our faith, we all exercise faith all the time, but faith that actually does something is when we allow, it's not the belief that something exists, it's, it's the trusting in that thing to do something that it's designed to do for us. Faith in Jesus is allowing Jesus to be in us, through us, and for us what we cannot be for ourselves. In the words of Adrian Thomas, faith is allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us with the adequacy of Jesus Christ. I love that. that. That faith, according to Alan Redpath, is stepping into the dark onto a rock. I want us to be a people that have a faith that works. And I think that Nehemiah gives us a beautiful picture of that. Because there are a lot of facets to faith. In the first eight verses, we see a faith that works in its relationship to courage. Courage is an interesting thing because we live in a time where we are driven by incredible fear. Incredible fear. Um, but it's, it's, it tends to be a time in which the fear is paralyzing. It's a fear that, that keeps us from acting. 
Um, I was, Darcy and I were just watching this really funny comedian, uh, this woman, and she was talking about how, as, she's like, I love that I'm a child of the 80s. She's like, my age. And she's like, you know, you know what I love about the 80s? She's like, there were no safe spaces. There were no trigger words. And, she, and then she said, and there was, she goes, and people weren't afraid of wheat. And she goes, why? And she's like, because for thousands of years, people hunted and gathered and fought saber-toothed tigers. And then she ended with this statement, I would never be with a man that's afraid of toast. It's not exactly what she said. It was far more crass than that. But it was really, that's the point. That's the point. I just gave you like the Christian humor version of it. Um, but what the, the point is, is that we are so um, self-absorbed in our current culture, we are the, we're the end of the road for the psychological self that has arisen through the 20th century. And we've come to its, its unfortunate conclusion that everything is offensive, everything offends, everyone's a victim, everyone is petrified and afraid of existing because we've made existence about ourselves. And see, Nehemiah, his courage flows out of not a natural disposition toward being courageous. Nobody has a natural disposition toward being courageous. What people have is an right affection or a right drive that allows them to override the unavoidable reality of fear. You know what it says here? It says, why is your face sad? The king asked him. And then he says this, then I was very much afraid. Right there is the defining moment in which Nehemiah was either going to be a man that acted by faith, a conviction that has come to him, he believes with all of his heart from God to be a participant in God's restorative plans for Israel. He's a man who knows the Torah. He's a man who knows the prophets, and he believes that the prophecy is being fulfilled. Jeremiah's very prophecy is being fulfilled, and he gets to be a part of that. And that conviction and that commitment and that covenantal loyalty to Yahweh gives him in this moment the ability to override his fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is fear under control, but it flows out of faith. Because faith defines our existence. And the problem is, is that we put our faith in all kinds of things that are lies. And we believe in things that are not stable. Like we put our faith in chairs that can't hold our weight, essentially. And then what happens is that we have placed our faith so often, and here's the, the thing that truly cannot hold your weight. Your fundamental belief in yourself. That is the great motto of modern society. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. You can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. You see, people come to faith in the church, but with that motto being the driving, it's just, it's like literally, I think it's, it's grooved into neural pathways in our brain that we have begun to believe the greatest lie propagated in human history, which is that we are our own gods. 
and that we are the center of our own universe. And that is why our worlds are so small. That is why we are experiencing so much mental illness. That is why we are experiencing, and listen, I'm not downplaying legitimate uh, uh, genetic dispositions toward, uh, toward illnesses. I myself have general anxiety disorder. I always feel sick before I preach on a Sunday. I always feel anxious and, and I can't eat before I preach. And I, I'm, I feel nervous and, I'm, and I have to like, I literally have to like talk myself down. But here's the thing, my faith in God is greater than my fear of that mental glitch controlling me. And I also have learned how to identify what are the physical manifestations of that anxiety, and I don't allow them to have power over me when I step in front of you because I believe so deeply that God will speak in and through any man, any woman who actually surrenders their life to him, that it overrides that. So it doesn't remove, God, I didn't get saved and my anxiety went away. I got saved and now I had the power to deal with it in a way where there is victory because actually God leaving the anxiety with me reminds me of the words of Paul. I asked three times that he remove this thorn from my flesh and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, I think that the Lord has allowed many glitches in my life to keep me humble and to keep me dependent upon him. And I think he does the same with you. The question is, is will that be a um, reason to not believe in God because he didn't get rid of this thing that you're experiencing or deal with this glitch that you're dealing with or is it actually increased your faith and given you the ability to recognize the world for what it is that we live in a, in a broken world in fallen bodies with fallen minds but that Jesus' grace is bigger than all of those things you see what Nehemiah has here is a picture of a faith that leads to a courageousness a willingness to put his life on. He found something worth dying for and became courageous. Courage is birthed out of finding something worth dying for. It's birthed out of finding something that you love so much that that love overrides your fear of rejection, your fear of, of disapproval. I can't be silent because I am loved, and I have to give that away. I have to give that away. This is a powerful picture of a faith that leads to courage. And you know what's so powerful is that his courageousness brings him into, and notice what he does with the king. He doesn't try to deny. It, it seems like almost like, well, you're kind of showing that you're not very courageous by the fact that you're being honest about why you're so upset. Like, I mean, it's like, like that's so risky i mean why would you why would you put that out there because essentially it's like he's blaming he's like how can i be okay when jerusalem's in ruins he's talking to the king of the empire the king who ultimately holds the power and and part of the reason it hasn't been rebuilt yet because that king hasn't made it a priority he's starting to but he hasn't so there's some accusation here um and yet he can be nothing but honest before the king and the king's response shows God's providence or his favor upon Nehemiah but Nehemiah could not know that favor unless he had stepped out in faith into the dark 
and, and watch God work. Watch God move in the heart. And notice, Nehemiah doesn't just ask to return. He goes even further. You know how you hear that, that saying like, I would have given you more if you would have asked for more. But you just, that's all you asked for. He could have just asked for his freedom. But no, he goes, for, he goes in for the kill. He's like, not only do I want you to send me back, but I want you to give me letters um, that I can bring to the governors of the land to get all of the provisions for free to do the rebuilding. So he's like, King, I don't need you to just send me home. I actually want you to pay for everything as well. Now that's like next level. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a bold, he is truly the, 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 the definition of Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena. He is daring greatly in this moment. And it's a powerful thing to, to behold. We need more courage, you guys. The reason I'm doing the, the um, evangelism class next Sunday night is because Portland breeds fear in Christians. We are the people in this city that truly, if I could use a, an old-fashioned term, that live in the closet. <laughs> and, and I think that it's an interesting thing that we have come to this place where we are so self-consumed and so fearful of the rejection of people or people thinking that we're weird because we're Christians or, you know, I feel like so often Christians will, when they even do confess that they're Christians, they begin by apologizing for all the things that they're not. Like, you know, I'm a Christian, but let me just qualify that. I mean, I'm, I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a Trumper, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, right wing, you know, person. Like, why are we qualifying anything? Just like, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. But part of the reasons we tend to qualify is because, because once again, it's not about who we know. It's about not being identified with what we don't like. And that's not testimony. That's not evangelism. Uh, evangelism forces us to ask the question, am I presenting to people that don't know Jesus a way of being that is appealing. In other words, is my life actually presenting to them something that they would even want? Because they don't want words, they don't want you to just, my dad was able to articulate the gospel clearly, but he was not yet a Christian. There's no appeal in the articulation of a gospel. Now, God can use anything, and he can use a charlatan who communicates the gospel accurately to save people, but I promise you, the most effective kind of evangelism, don't, don't be comforted by the idea that God will use us in spite of us. Be, be, be desirous to communicate something that flows out of the depths of our own intimacy with the God that we know, not just know about. That's what is appealing. When I first preached at Church in the Park, Gosh, it was like eight, I think the first time we did it was 10 years ago. And we had 200 people show up. And I was terrified. It was the first time we did open air preaching. And, you know, I've seen open air preaching. It generally doesn't go well. Because it's usually like just one person just yelling at non-believers. Uh, but what I viewed is like, no, the power of like mass evangelism is this, it's essentially bringing the church service into a public sphere where you're not necessarily preaching at 
those pagans out there. You're just doing what you do in church in an open setting where people can come and see. And people will always gather when they see a large gathering. People are curious. It's, it's a thing that happens. And so our thing was like, I'm not, we're just going to go out and do our church service in an open setting. And people came. And the first time we did it, I was scared. My fear led to, it's con, fear is contagious. Everyone else became fearful. And we were all just like little like terrified sheep in a park that was filled with hipsters and gutter punk kids who were yelling at us. And then we were, we were leading worship, and it was comfortable at least when we were all standing doing songs, and then I had everyone sit down, and I was the only one standing, and I'm like, sweet Jesus, this is the worst day of my whole life. This is terrible. I don't like this. I love one-on-one -on -one evangelism. This is not what I want to be doing right now. Um, and I just remember just being there, forcing ourselves out of our comfort zone and being in the open, and so weird. I mean, you guys are not going to believe this but nobody was killed. Nope, not a single Christian died that night. Um, nobody was verbally attacked. There was a couple hecklers. But honestly, once I started preaching, everyone just got quiet. Every once in a while, this one guy would yell at us. I mean, over the years, we've had some interesting things. We had, I had a person smoke weed and blow it at the back of my head um, one night, and then I, I had visions and got hungry. Um, and then I, we had another time where a topless woman sat down next to my daughter. Um, and, and Darcy had to just keep saying, honey, stop staring. Um, and <laughs> I won't say what Hattie said, because it was pretty funny. Um, but, uh, and then when the woman got up to leave, her boyfriend picked her up. She put her shirt on as she was leaving. And then her boyfriend's like, what's going on here? And she's like, a bunch of Christians trying to get attention. It was amazing. <laughs> Last year, I missed it, but Pip had the great privilege of preaching at Church in the Park when the nude bicycle ride gathered behind him, <laughs> which I can't think of a more fun preaching opportunity than that. Like, I would have just switched modes and gone into a whole presentation on the, the natural outcome of gravity and its effect on the body as a comparison to sin. Um, but uh, so you're not going to die. Nobody's going to die. But we are so afraid of our little egos being hurt. And if we actually cared more about the people that we are afraid would reject us, if we actually cared about them, how could we be silent? How could we be silent? A faith that is courageous is a faith that has led you into intimacy with a God who you have fallen in love with. And your love for that God and the love that he has poured out in your heart for others overrides your fear of rejection and your fear of failure. Be a risk taker. We don't live with a scarcity mentality when it comes to our faith. But we dare greatly and we believe God for great things. Faith in action. This courage leads to action. This courage leads to A, the surprising response of the king, go and take everything you need to do it. And now you have faith moving. And Nehemiah goes to the city. And one of the things I love about his faith in action is not a faith that moves him into impulsiveness. He's not, he's not getting ahead of God, nor is he lagging behind. He is 
carefully assessing the situation. And what we see him, he goes in, he, he goes out at night, he doesn't let anyone know what he's doing at first, and he goes out and basically surveys the land. This is one of the powerful things about the necessity of wisdom and how true faith can actually lead to an increase of understanding. That there is a practicality here that flows out of his robust faith. And that is, is that he recognizes there is a, I know what God's called me to do. I'm, and the king has given me the ability to go back and do it. But if I am going to inspire the people toward action, I have to be able to articulate clearly what needs to be done. God's favor is on me, but that doesn't mean that God is just by osmosis giving me all the facts. One of the things that Gary Brashears, uh, the, um, the head of the theology department at Western Seminary, once told me, he said, listen, when the scripture is silent, what we need is spirit-filled wisdom. And spirit-filled wisdom um, requires, uh, requires a, careful, uh, a careful observation of the situation so that we know how to move forward. This is one of the things that you have in the Proverbs. It says that a man will, make, will plan his his path, but God is the one who directs his feet. Now, here's the most beautiful thing about a faith that works, is that God, because he actually has the ability to override and to intervene and to redirect, is that you can get off the path. You can make bad decisions. I promise you his grace is greater than our failures, and he, and he will even use the mistakes we make and the missteps and the impulsiveness he can use it to actually increase our wisdom. Sometimes we have to learn humility through the school of humiliation. Sometimes we gain wisdom through being fools. <laughs> um, and if we allow God the, the right to be himself in and through us, what we'll find is that he will even utilize the stupidity of our actions to actually redirect us and train us in godliness. We don't have to lose faith when we, when we feel like we just went down a path that led to a dead end. But what I love about Nehemiah is that there is, there is movement, but there is also conscientiousness. Um, in my book, I actually um, have a section um, entitled Make Haste Slowly. And that, that comes from um, this, this old um, adage that uh, was um, created by uh, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, and it was festina lente, it's a Latin phrase, make haste slowly. And in the picture, um, the symbol that was utilized, the first symbol to, to uh, address that, that Latin phrase was a crab um, pinching the bottom of the wings of a butterfly. And what it meant was that the butterfly is a picture of lightness and movement, while the crab is a picture of grounding. Of, of not allowing the butterfly to get ahead of itself. The reason Marcus Aurelius used this, um, this statement is as he was telling the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, listen, you must make haste slowly. In other words, festina lente meant for a soldier is that you gotta continue to move. Movement is, <laughs> you, if, you, if you stop moving, you're gonna perish. You gotta move, but that movement needs to be conscientious. There needs to be wisdom in your movement. You need to pay attention, in other words. I think that for us as Christians, that we actually forget how deeply connected a faith that works is with faith and wisdom. 
Wisdom is something that Scripture promises to those who ask God for it in faith. That's what it says in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives, gives to all liberally and without reproach. But let the one who asks, ask in faith. For the one who does not ask in faith is like one who looks into the mirror and then immediately forgets what they look like. This is James chapter 1. When I first read that passage, I was a brand new believer and I had wasted my high school years, graduate with a 1.7 grade point average. I mean, that, that's not really even a grade point average. Uh, and it's not even really passing. And I didn't go to college and I pursued music and pursued drugs. And by the time I got saved, I was like, I am never going to be smart and I'm never going to be able to think clearly again. But I just began to pray that God would restore my mind. And when I read that verse, what struck me about it is it wasn't stated as a probability, like this is something that you might get if you seek it. It's something that is promised, promised. It's stated as an emphatic. And I just began to pray those words every day. I prayed faithfully, Lord, just would you grant me wisdom? Help me to understand. Here's the thing that Christians don't understand. We want our faith to increase, but faith only increases as we become more and more familiar with the object of our faith. Everyone exercises faith all the time, but a lot of times it really is blind faith. The Christian life is not meant to be blind faith. Our faith is only as good as the object in which we place our faith, and the, the, the size of our faith is dependent upon, the, upon our understanding of that which we have placed our faith in. I used to hate flying because I didn't understand the dynamics of flying. I hated turbulence but I had enough faith to get on the plane to get from point A to point B. That's all it takes to, for a plane to be able to do what it's supposed to do for you. But the enjoyment of the flight is dependent upon the amount of faith you have in the plane. The more I understood planes, the more I understood turbulence, the less fearful I was when we hit it. When we hit it. Not always, I still get scared a little bit sometimes, but far less than I used to. And it's familiarity. I spend a lot of time flying. And if you don't get over it, you're not going to travel very much. And so understanding the object of our faith is an absolute necessity. Have you guys heard that phrase, let go and let God? That is not a true statement. <laughs> it's let go of the lie of what God never intended for you. Let go of your own your own idea that you are God and that you are the center of the universe, but then you cling to God with everything that is in you. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means that there is an effort involved. The gospel comes freely. Salvation comes freely. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God, but the Holy Spirit doesn't just make you know Scripture. You actually have to read it for the Holy Spirit to be able to illuminate it. That's why Jesus says, and when the spirit of truth comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, Christians, why do Christians walk away from their faith? Because their faith was never based upon anyone that they knew. It was like this kind of lighthearted, like I believe that Jesus exists, but I think, but maybe I just grew up in the church. Uh, and it's never become a real thing to me, and it's just become a kind of a cultural norm for me. But it's not until you recognize the depth of your own brokenness 
and the reality that Jesus has done everything, met you in that brokenness, and has made available to you his very life. And you surrender to that life, and then you give yourself. The more freedom he gives you, the more responsibility you have to actually steward that liberation to become learners and followers of him. And so when I got saved, I went from the biggest underachiever in the world to an obnoxious overachiever in that I've got to make up for a decade of wasted time on drugs. And I just began to read my Bible like a madman. I even went through one season where I was reading the New Testament once a week. And I don't say that to shame you. I'm just saying that I knew what I had been saved from. I knew where I, what, what direction I was headed before. And I wanted to know Jesus because the more I got to know him, the more I fell in love with him. And the more I fell in love with him, the more I experienced the power of his presence in my life. And I began to see purpose beyond just this self-centered, self-absorbed reality. But I saw, it, and I now saw the world through a new lens. I received what Harry Blamiers called a sacramental cast where I began to see the sacred in, in everything. And it was exciting, and it was an adventure. And it wasn't work anymore. It was, just, it was just this desire, this insatiable desire. As a deer panteth after the brook, so my soul thirsts for you. I drank, and it actually created in me, in me more thirst. And what was powerful is that that well is always available. I think the problem is that we just don't take the time to drink from it. We need wisdom, and we need a faith that is conscientious, and we need to understand the object in which we have placed our faith. And so if your faith is just like, you know, it's what Paul and Peter was like, was, were so, could be so severe with, the, with, those, with those early Christians. It says, you should be eating meat by now, but you're still drinking milk. Illiteracy is not just a national problem. It is most definitely a Christian problem. We are biblically anemic. We don't understand the very God in whom we believe, and we don't understand the words in which actually form our sacred language, and we're not allowing it to transform our lives in a way that is appealing to those that sit outside of the church. It's faith and action. It's faith that's meant to move us toward an ever-deepening of that faith through time spent with the one in whom we've believed. Faith and inspiration. Nehemiah, once he has taken in the information, he has is, he is carefully looked at what needs to be done. Now he comes forth, and this is a faith that inspires others to change. Now listen, when it comes to evangelism, we don't save anyone. God does the saving, but let us not forget that the primary way in which God makes himself known to a lost world is he does it through us as believers, as conduits of believers. And I just ask you the question, how many of you, and I don't need to see hands, but how many of you have taken seriously the call to be witnesses to the ends of the world? And even a more important question, Many of you actually have had the experience of just leading someone to Jesus. I remember a month after I got saved, leading my friend Dylan to, to Christ. And you know how that happened? It wasn't because I was a persuasive evangelist. I hadn't even read the New Testament. I just knew enough that I got saved, but it led me 
to tell everyone about it. And telling Dylan about it, he responded favorably and wanted to know more. And he saw it legitimately change me and create an excitement in me that he's like, I need that. He was going through a really intense breakup with a woman he had lived with for like 10 years. And he, and he was just like, I want to know more about this Jesus. And I'm like, I don't know a lot. I just got saved, but here's what I know. And, we, and he prayed. I remember we prayed. I led him on through a prayer. I don't even think it was that accurate. I don't know what I was saying. And I felt like I needed to pray it again anyway. Um, and so it was, it, it was this powerful thing. But the fact is, is that the enthusiasm flowed out of like my life was going this way and now it's going this way. And I just want other people to recognize this, the beauty of this. And I told everyone, and I lost most of my friends over my faith in Jesus, but I also saw many people, many people become curious and want to know about this Jesus, but they need to see a life. It's, it's about being supernaturally natural and naturally supernatural. I think so often Christians like proselytizing uh, and proselytizing is the appropriate word. It's like some sort of rote memory around a message that's never actually taken root in your life, and you haven't learned how to communicate it in a way that's actually normal. And so you're like, let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> like, they're like, well, I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm the, you're like, I'm not like that. I'm like, well, what are you like? And how do you share? And do you share? And if you don't share, why don't you share? And what are you embarrassed of? And what is it that defines you? And what is it that drives you? And what is it that you give your time to? Faith that inspires leads to this kind of result. And then he said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may go, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God. All he does is witness. He just testifies to what's happened. He's not selling them on anything. He just told them of the hand of my God that had been on, upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And it says, and they strengthened their hands to do the work. There is a faith that inspires. You guys, I would say that a faith that works is a faith that flows out of a right affection. The love of God, we are told, is poured out in our hearts. But it's not just now the ability to know that we are loved, but it is the ability to love. Let me give you an example of this. This week, I had this really powerful thing happen. Um, I, Darcy calls me and she's like, hey, honey, there's someone sleeping in front of our house in the morning, and I was down in my, in my studio um, reading, and so I, I stepped out of the basement, and I, um, I walked to the front, and sure enough, like right on the sidewalk, right in front of our front steps, there's just a person in the sleeping bag, and, uh, um, and yeah, I don't know if it was a man or a woman or what I was going to experience when I woke them up, but I needed to wake them up and find out what was going on, um, and so I just walked up to the person, and I said, hey, can I help you? And this person pulled the sleeping bag off their head, and they looked up at me really, really groggy. And it was a woman, and her name was Jocelyn. And she said, I need a ride back to my tent. And I said, I'm like, all right, we'll go ahead and get your stuff. I'll take you back to your tent. Where, where's your tent at? And I didn't even know where it was. I'm like, wait, what did I just say? Like, how far am I driving right now? Um, and it was a few miles away. She was staying in a little, like, tent city. Um, uh, uh, up off of 82nd, um, and she got in the car, and I'm not going to lie, like, I mean, this woman was in a rough, rough place, and 
I mean, the smell was unbearable, and I'm pretty weak stomach. I would never be a good nurse. Um, and, uh, and bad body smells is a real hard one for me. Uh, and, she, you know, she just, she, like my dad, it was like oozing out of her, every cell in her body, like the death that she was taking in through drug addiction and alcohol. And, uh, um, and just who knows how long without bathing. And, but then I just began to ask questions. And, I was, and as I asked questions, what came out of this person who at first is just like uh, an inconvenience in front of my house is quickly becoming a divine image bearer of God who desperately needs love and who's been through so much trauma, uh, abusive husband, 10 years on the street. Uh, I couldn't get much information out of her around her childhood but I just tried to ask questions that just would give me some insight into A, why she is where she is and how it is that we could, I could, I could help her. And uh, she has three kids that are grown and I, I got the impression that they were possibly on the street as well. Um, and it was just, she wasn't traveling with anyone so it's so unsafe for a woman to live on the street. And my heart just began to break for her and it was weird, it's like all of a sudden like not even noticing the smell. I'm just thinking like, what can we do? What can, what can we do? And so I told her I'm a pastor and I invited her to come to Door of Hope. And I like, I'm like, if you come, listen, I wasn't able to change really much of anything, but maybe, just maybe, just that simple step of humanizing, a humanizing that is inspired by, this is th that simple question that, used, that was once a famous book, what would Jesus do? Um, was what haunted me in that moment. So here's the interesting, so I drop her off at the tent, I haven't heard from her. I haven't seen her again in my neighborhood, but I've been praying for her. And that, and that alone I think is powerful. Do we believe that prayer changes things? Uh, and then yesterday, I pull up in front of the house and, I'm, and I, Darcy's like, can you mow the lawn before my parents get here? So I start mowing the lawn and this woman that's running by, um, who I see running in our neighborhood all the time, she stops, she takes her, she takes her headphones out and she says, hey, I just wanted to thank you for showing kindness to that woman that was sleeping in front of your house the other morning. I was running by when it happened. And I said, I'm like, of, of course. I mean, I, it would be wrong for me to not try to help. And uh, she's like, well, most people don't. And I just thought it was really cool. And it just meant a lot to me to see someone in our neighborhood show kindness to someone that was where they shouldn't be. And I said, of course, so I go, you know, I'm a pastor and, uh, of a church and we're very involved with Portland Rescue Mission. And I started sharing with her about Door of Hope and she starts sharing with me, I just went through a divorce and I've got two grown boys that are, have drug addiction issues. And I'm like, I would be happy to meet with them. And she's like, really? And I'm like, and I, and I told her about Darcy and she's like, I'd love to meet your wife. And so here's this woman that's now single and she's our age and she's got grown She's got grown boys who are struggling with drugs and a husband who left her. And it's like, we don't understand how beautiful the providence of God is. Like me just driving this woman to her tent led to another woman who's hurting to see an act of kindness that led to a representation of grace. But here's the thing, if I wouldn't have shared with her that I'm a pastor and that it's Jesus that inspired me to do that, it wouldn't have led to a conversation about her brokenness and a curiosity and an interest in 
the church and in, and in me maybe being able to minister to her boys. Um, and so I think that this is the thing. We don't understand how interwoven everything is, what divine opportunities there are, and how God can utilize um, the most, the most uh, what seem like the simplest act. But that's the thing. Faith must act for it to change things. It's got to act. Our testimony must be connected to a life that reflects a gentleness and a graciousness um, because grace is infectious. And that's where we have to ask, does our faith, is it model something that others want? Faith that inspires uh, is a powerful thing. And I close with this, faith in opposition. We can't expect to be a people that actually begin to act on our faith, to step into that gap and to participate in God's purposes without there being opposition. Jesus said, listen, there is a ruler of this world, speaking of Satan. He is the father of lies. He says, in, he goes, I'm spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full, but in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. He doesn't say you're either gonna be suffering or you're gonna be joyful and at peace. He's like, the only place where you're gonna experience joy, real joy and real peace is in the midst of the suffering. Then he talks about the enemy and the rule of this world. He says, arise, let us go from here. The ruler of this world is coming. And he closes the upper room discourse with this statement before he goes into his high priestly prayer. But he has nothing in me. Notice what Nehemiah says to these, these opposers, Sanballat and Tobiah, and then in 19 and 20, verse 10, we're told that they, that they heard of the desire to rebuild and it displeased them greatly um, because it was threatening their position and their power. And then again in 19 and 20, um, it says that they jeered at us and despised us. And what is this thing that you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? But what does he say? The God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build and you have no portion but he has nothing in me. We forget that there are actors in God's redemptive history, and yes, there is a reality that people might oppose what we're doing, but we also must keep our minds firmly attached to the fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of darkness. And when God's people begin to enter into God's work, you can count on the enemy opposing what's happening. And one of the signs that we are being useful to the kingdom of God is that we actually come under opposition. And so opposition is, should not discourage us or destroy us or <laughs> blow us apart, but opposition should actually be the great reminder, I must be doing something right because I seem to hit a nerve. The early days of Door of Hope, I felt that more. I also went through a season where I didn't feel it a lot. And, and I would argue that there was a, there was a sense like, the Lord was showing me, hey, you're kind of moving back toward the wilderness. All the battles are happening in the promised land. Quit wandering in the wilderness. I didn't create you for the wilderness. But sometimes he has to lead us back into the wilderness that he might strip us of the things that have been blinding us 
to his presence so that he can bring us back into the promised land where we will immediately enter back into the battle. Because on this side of eternity, we do not get to function as Christians without pain or without opposition. Opposition is always at play wherever God is powerfully moving. And I believe God wants to powerfully move through Door of Hope, but I also believe that with all of my heart that that means we will experience much opposition. And that doesn't need to discourage us and it shouldn't blow up your faith, it should increase it. Jesus is worth dying for. And if we don't believe that, then we need to go back to the place on our knees and say, Lord, give me the beatific vision. Give me a vision of your beauty, of your presence, of your grace. Blind me with the light of your love to where I cannot do anything but share that love, share that light with others. When Moses spent time in the presence of God, when he came down, the people of Israel were afraid of him because his face was radiant. Do you spend enough time with Jesus that your life is radiant? That only comes by faith. A faith that is based upon the one who can make you radiant. Because it's not how much faith you have, it's the one in whom you place your faith. So put your trust in Jesus, full-hearted, and step into, his, step into his purpose and his plan that you might have a faith that works. Amen? Let's pray.